Okay, good morning everyone. As Mike just said, we're going to be opening up the book of Galatians together this morning uh, as we continue our Gospel Truth series, uh, which is based in the book of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the churches in the region of Galatia, a region into which Paul had gone, preaching the Gospel, teaching people about Jesus, teaching them that salvation uh, can be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And as people were responding to the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus, churches were started, churches, churches were established. And so Paul went around in that region starting new churches and then he'd gone off to a, to a place called Antioch. And this letter of Galatians is uh, him being able to write to them about some things that um, he was aware of some events that had happened and some things that were happening that he just needed to come and bring it wasn't just about bringing correction, it's kind of serious things that were happening that he needed to come and, and challenge and bring direction to. So what I'm going to say next is going to confuse you, having said that we're going to be speaking in Galatians, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts. Uh, so if you can turn to Acts chapter 10, um, trust me on this one, I'm not going rogue, I have a reason for doing it. Um, and the, the reason why is, if you remember the last time I spoke, I was speaking about where, where Paul was kind of... Um, speaking into where he had come from really about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and I started just by sharing what had happened to Paul on the road to Damascus because understanding what had happened then helps us to understand what he was talking about and what he was writing about in the letter and today we're going back into Acts because I feel like we need to actually understand something of not the Apostle Paul's story but the Apostle Peter's story uh, because within the context of the series if you've been here for the last few weeks You'll have heard it said a few times that one of the things that Paul was addressing, one of the concerns that Paul had was around this encounter that he'd had with Peter, uh, where it turned out that, that something was happening in the church, uh, and, and, and particularly in the way that Peter was behaving, in how he was conducting himself, that contradicted the gospel message that was being preached. And that's what we're going to be looking at when we do get into Galatians. We'll be looking at this interaction that these two guys have, that Peter and Paul have. But in order for us to understand really the, the significance of what had happened, we need to understand something more of what had happened to Peter beforehand and, and why what had happened in Galatia was such a big deal. So uh, our, our time in Acts, I'm going to share a bit about it and then we're going to jump in and pick up some verses. But our, uh, our journey into Acts starts with a guy named Cornelius. Now Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. So Gentiles were pretty much anyone that wasn't Jewish. So he didn't have a Jewish background. He didn't have a Jewish heritage. He was a Roman centurion. But he was a guy who, who feared God. He was a guy who desperately sought after God. He was a man of prayer. And there was this occasion where he's seeking, uh, seeking God in prayer. And, and God speaks to him through a vision uh, of an angel of God who comes and says, Look, I'm going I'm to send someone to you. I'm going to send this guy, Peter, to you and he's going to come and he's going to tell you all about me. He's going to share with you about me. So what I need you to do is I need you to send some, some of your men and I need you to go to this uh, place called Joppa. Uh, and, and when you're there, then I'll show you where you can find Peter and then ask him to come back. And so these guys set off on their journey to go and find Peter in order to bring him back to Cornelius so he can share about Jesus, so he can share about uh, about what it is to be saved, what it is to have faith in Jesus. And at this time, as they're journeying, we're going to pick up uh, Acts 10 verse 9 and see what was happening with Peter while this was going on. So it says that the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, went, hang on a sec, before I get there, I need to set, just set another bit of context. 
And the important bit is this, is while Cornelius is, is from a Gentile background, Peter was from a Jewish background. Okay? So Peter was one of the, the disciples, but he'd come from a, a Jewish background. As one who was coming from a Jewish background, as a Jewish man, he would have been, as part of, of their, not just of their tradition, but really part of who they were, they, they handed down the Mosaic law from generation to generation, the law that God had given to Moses, in, in his way of saying that this, this, these are the commands in which my people, this is the way in which my people are meant to live. And it was a comprehensive law, it was made up of 613 commandments in total. 268, uh, 248 of those were kind of positive commandments. This is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do. 365 were more about uh, these are the things that you, you're to refrain from and things you'd stay away from. So it's a very comprehensive law that was passed down. And, and some of these 613 laws were what we could call clean laws. And what the clean laws referred to and what they related to was how they could be ceremonially clean in order to be acceptable for the presence of God in worship. So it wasn't just that you could, you could encounter God. Actually, there were, there were different things that you needed to do in order to make yourself clean, to make yourself pure enough to be able to do that. And some of those related to food. Some of those related to actual the, the, the process of cleaning yourself to make yourself right for that. And a lot of it also had to do with who you associated with which nations and which peoples you were allowed to associate with. And if you associated with the wrong people, then you would make yourself unclean. So it was a big deal, these clean laws. So Peter, as a Jewish man who'd come to faith in Jesus, would have had this background, not just this background, he would have been brought up having been one that was taught to observe the law with a really good understanding of what it meant to be clean or unclean and what it involved in order to be made clean. Does that make sense before I continue? Because we just need to set that... Uh, to understand what's going to happen. So let's pick up again. So Acts 10 verse 9, it says that the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air And there came a voice to him that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again and a second time and said, what God has made clean, do uh, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, Paul, uh, so Peter has the, this vision, God gives him this vision of all of these things that up until this point would have been unclean, things that Peter would not have gone any way near. He'd have stayed away from them because he knew that by touching them or, or eating them or whatever it might be, that it would make him unclean. But now, God himself is saying, do not call anything unclean that I have now made clean. It's just this sense that through Jesus, the, 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 kind of the, the requirements that were there have, have been lifted and actually there's a new freedom that you can enter into that you weren't able to before. And so Paul's kind of, think, uh, I'm going to do this, jumping between Peter and Paul. Peter is thinking through this vision, he's kind of meditating on it and thinking through what it means. And then, the, and then these guys from Cornelius, they track him down uh, and they find him and they ask him to, to come with them. And they take him to go and find Cornelius. So you've got Peter, who's this Jewish guy now in the household of a Gentile. Up until this point, up until this encounter with Jesus, that just wouldn't have happened. Because he would have understood the consequences of what that meant. But something had changed for Peter. And when Peter's in front of Cornelius and with Cornelius' household, Peter says this. He says that as he talked with them, in verse 27, it said, As he talked with him, 
he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. So you can see something shifted here for Peter. His understanding of who it is he can associate with, his understanding of who he can engage with has changed because of the work of Jesus. That which he'd understood to be unclean anymore, God is now saying is clean. That that association between Jews and Gentiles that would have been unthinkable before, now there's a way for engagement, not only engagement, but relationship and fellowship between the two. And then in verse 34 to 35, Peter's proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles and it says that Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is a huge shift that has happened. That it's not just about the the, the Jewish people being able to enjoy a relationship with God, that through Jesus all nations can know relationship with him. All nations can be put right with him. All nations are invited into fellowship with God, but also with one another. You see, Peter has been changed by the gospel. And he, he goes from Joppa, and it goes, so it goes from being with, um, uh, with Cornelius in his household and, and preaching the news uh, to the Gentiles, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and he goes and spends some time in Jerusalem, but there's this group in Jerusalem called the Circumcision Party, just need to clarify, circumcision party is not an event that you go to. The circumcision party is a group of people. Uh, and it's a group of people who were, they taught actually that you, you still needed, while faith came through, through Jesus, salvation comes through Jesus, actually they taught that you still need the ongoing obedience of the Mosaic law to complete what Jesus has started, particularly in terms of circumcision, uh, food laws, and observing special days. And if you've been following the series, if you've been here for the last few series, we'll see that these are really the things, that, the, the main things that, that Paul is putting his hand on in the letter to the Galatians. These, these shifts of the gospel that are coming in, these challenges to the gospel that are coming in by this particular group. And they, they, they criticise Peter. They say, how can it be that you come and eat with these, with, uh, I think it says with these uncircumcised men, so he's saying with these Gentiles, how can it be that you as a Jew are coming to eat with these guys? They're Gentiles, they're unclean. But then Peter shares what's happened to him. And he shares about this vision. And he shares about what God has been been showing him. And and he shares about what the gospel means. And he says that I am not going to stand in God's way. I'm not going to put anything in the way that God has taken out of the way to create a barrier that God himself has not set in place. And so really, this is the background we need to understand, because now when we turn to Galatians, if you can turn to Galatians, we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to see why what happens with Peter is actually, is really a, a, a big deal as to why Paul has to deal with it. Now quite often, when it comes to, to preaching, one of the first things I tend to do is I'll read it through, and then I'll look for common themes that might be coming up, maybe phrases or words that are repeated often. Because that will generally give you a clue as to what the, what the writer is, is trying to get to. We do that, don't we? We stress the things that are important. We talk about them a lot. So what I want you to do is while we read through these verses, I want you to look out for repeated words or repeated themes that come through that might give us some clue 
as to what it is that Paul's trying to get to the heart of, what Paul's trying to get to. <coughs> don't get clever with me. Don't say the and and repeated a lot. We know that. That will happen. But I'm looking for more specific things that might give us more of a clue. So let's pick up from Galatians chapter 2 and from verse 11, which says, when Cephas, so Cephas is another name for Peter. Okay, so when Paul writes about Cephas, he's talking about Peter, who we've just heard about. It says that when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Shout them out. What are the common themes? What are the common words? Justified. So justified or justification is one. There's definitely more. Law. Law keeps coming up. Paul keeps referring to the law. What else? Jews. Speaks about the Jews a lot. On the flip side of that, who else does he talk about? The Gentiles. So he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. The relationship between them and God, the relationship between one another. Is there anything else? Faith. Faith. Speaks about faith. Yeah. Okay. These are the five that I picked up. He speaks about Jews and Gentiles nine times. It's quite a lot. In those verses. He speaks about the law six times. He speaks about being justified or justification four times. Actually four times in the space of a couple of lines. He speaks about life or to live or to have lived eight times. He speaks about Jesus or the Christ eight times. There's this repetition going through. Paul is really trying to labour his point here. He's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. The law, justification, life. And Jesus. And that's a lot for him to be packing into these few verses. And we're going to look at it in in some depth today. But we're not going to be able to unpack all of it. And we don't need to unpack all of it today. Because actually the rest of the letter is very much about doing that. Where we'll be able to break down some of these things in more detail. And really to understand them. But it's helpful I think for us to have that in mind. These are the things that he's going to be talking about. 
because they are of absolute importance. And this morning, I want us to kind of look at this, this engagement, this, uh, this situation between Peter and with Paul from, from two perspectives. Uh, when I was reading Tim Keller's book on this, I found it really helpful. He speaks about Peter's mistake in the first instance, but then what is Paul's response? So we've got Peter's mistake and then Paul's response to that. So let's start with Peter's mistake and actually think about what's happening then. What's happening? What is it that Paul is writing about? What is this situation that happened in Antioch that has got him to the point where he's like, I need to write to the churches in Galatia just to set some things right. So what was happening? We've heard already this morning about Peter's story. We've heard that he came from this place where division between Jews and Gentiles was was not just expected, it would have been encouraged. But yet through this encounter that he's had with Jesus, through this vision, through these words that Jesus has spoken to him, something has changed where he now realizes that where there was division and separation, actually now there's unity and fellowship. That it doesn't matter where you've come from, actually it matters who you're found in, first and foremost. And so Peter, he's now, rather than living separately from the Gentiles, he's actually enjoying fellowship with both Jews and with Gentiles. He's saying again, it doesn't matter where you come from, if you're in Christ, then then we're brothers, we're brothers and sisters. Let's be together, let's share meals together, let's enjoy friendship, let's enjoy relationship, Let's, let's share life with one another, let's enjoy fellowship with one another. But then this circumcision party arrive. You might have heard throughout the series, we're also referring to them as the Judaizers. It's the same people. If you hear those names, uh, that they're interchangeable. They'll be the same sort of group. And then when this circumcision party arrive, what now happens is that rather than Peter being engaged fully in the life of the church, he withdraws himself and he actually separates himself from the Gentile believers. And now he's only really associating with and spending time believers who have come from that Jewish background. So can we see what's happened is a a reversal of what God had done in his life, a reversal of what the gospel actually does, rather than there being unity and fellowship, when this group arrived, what it causes Peter to do is to withdraw, and where there was no division and separation, that has set back in. And it's finding its way throughout the church, because it's not just staying with Peter, the other Jewish Christians are seeing what Peter is doing, and they're following his lead. And now there's this big issue of separation, they're not sharing meals together. They're not, in, they're not sharing life together. And the reason why Peter does this is because he's afraid. We don't know what he was afraid of. I don't think we necessarily need to understand that exactly what he was afraid of. But the reason why he withdrew was because he was afraid of this group. And the fear that he experiences causes him to compromise what he knows to be true. He knows about the gospel of Jesus. He knows that the gospel of Jesus means it doesn't matter where you've come from. He knows that the gospel of Jesus means that all, all people of all nations can know peace with Jesus. He knows that, but fear has driven him to compromise what he believes through the way that he's living and through his conduct and through his behaviour. And as I say, not only for himself, but others have followed him. And where there was once unity, now there's separation around the dinner table based on race and on nationality. That's what it came down to. And this was something that Paul couldn't leave unchallenged. You know, sometimes, people say, don't you, sometimes you have to learn to pick your battles. And we have that in all, in all relationships, don't we? 
actually there might be something that might irritate us but I don't necessarily need to confront someone about it I can live with it it's not that important but sometimes there are things that come up where you're like actually this needs to be addressed because something's gone wrong and we need to bring some correction things can't carry on as they were and what's happening here with this division around the dinner table Paul's now saying actually this is something that I can't leave unchallenged I need to address this it's far too important and so Peter Paul calls Peter out and he challenges him in front of everyone if you were there this would be a bit of an awkward moment if you were if you were in that place if you were in that meeting and you've got two of the apostles Peter pretty much seen as the the, the head of of the church in Jerusalem and here he is Paul's come to him and he's challenging him and calling him out to his face in front of everyone there's a danger that we understand this as Paul calling Peter out for being rude or for being unwelcoming that he's just calling him out and saying that this isn't the right way to be this isn't a very welcoming way to be this isn't a polite way to be with one another but actually it goes much deeper than that because if we only see it on that surface level we'll miss what's actually going on because there is something deeper going on which Paul, uh, Paul explains in verse 14 he says this he says it's not about being rude it's not about being welcoming or not he says but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel that's when I had to confront Peter their conduct was not in line or not in step with the truth of the gospel you see the truth of the gospel had led Peter to Cornelius hadn't it the truth of the gospel had led him to fellowship with those who were different from him from those he wouldn't have associated with that's what the gospel had done for Peter that's where the gospel had led him to see in that sense God had called him in step with the gospel where his ways of thinking the things that he had inherited from generations before his mindset on certain things and now God's doing some adjusting and some shifting where he's like I need you just to get in line with what the gospel would now say and that's true for all of us when we come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus we have to it, 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 it's a process isn't it of, of us being aligned and shaped and being brought in line with the truth of the gospel because it affects every area of our lives and it should cause change in every area of our lives but the problem here is that Peter had started to walk in, in, in his old ways where he's not walking in step with the gospel anymore he's veered off in a different direction back from where he'd come from rather than continuing with where Jesus had called him to last time I spoke I was speaking about the truth of the gospel as like a plumb line I think it's a really helpful image for us to have in terms of, of, of how we can see the gospel because it's the plumb line that ensures that the structure is centred and that it's built properly and that's what the truth of the gospel does for us it enables us to, to build lives that, that are centred on, on the truth and that are centred around the way that God would call us to so you build according to the plumb line which means you build your life according to the gospel we build our lives individually according to the gospel but we build our lives corporately as, as God's gathered people according to the gospel as well what you believe I'm not just talking about for, for Christians I'm talking about anyone for what you believe or what you know to be true informs how you behave and how you live that's how you make your decisions about how you're going to be I'm going to make decisions about my life based on what I understand and what I know to be true 
And that's true for each and every one of us. You see, the gospel is truth, but it works its way out in our lives. I heard it put like this, that the, the Christian life is, one of con- is, is a, a continual realignment process. It's that ongoing daily process where we're daily having to be realigned with the gospel. Who Jesus is, who God is, who God says we are, who God says we're called to be, how we're to relate to him, how we're to relate to others. It's just this continual realigning process. And the thing is, Peter... Peter would have known that what he was doing was wrong. He would have known that the way he was living was not in line with the gospel. The reason we know this is because Paul calls him out for hypocrisy. You can't be a, you can't be a hypocrite for something you don't understand. That's just being ignorant of something. You can't accuse someone of being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy means you, you state one thing or know one thing and yet you live in a way that's contrary to it, doesn't it? At least that's how I understand hypocrisy to be. You see, Peter wasn't ignorant or uninformed, but he was living a life that was hypocritical. He knew what it was to be found in Jesus. He knew what it was in terms of what, what, what the gospel does for us. And how the gospel says that we're to be with one another, yet the way he was living, his conduct, was contrary to what he knew to be true. And Paul says, doesn't he, he says, You're a Jew who lives like a Gentile. How then can you force Gentiles to live like Jews. It's like, this isn't the way that you're living. If this isn't the way that you're living, then why on earth would you expect someone else to live in a different way? That's not right. It's not just that it's not fair. It's just not right. Because you're calling people to something that is false. And Peter's hypocrisy, and the hypocrisy of those who had followed him into it, it sent a message. And the message that it sends is this, is that Christians can't fully be saved Or Christians can't really be pleasing to God unless they become Jewish. That's that's the message that they were sending through their conduct. That might not be the message that uh, Peter understood in his thinking. That might not be the message that Peter had received himself. But the message that he's sending is that you can't be fully acceptable to God. You can't be fully pleasing to God unless you become Jewish. And this is absolutely contrary to the gospel. This is absolutely contrary to the message that Peter himself taught. So there's confusion coming in here in the church. It's like they're being taught one thing and yet they're seeing another. And it leads to confusion. And it is more than unhelpful. It is absolutely imperative that Paul brings some clarity and brings that realigning that needs to come. You see, Peter's actions spoke the message that you need to look to something else or look to something else besides Jesus to be acceptable to God. The message that Peter was sending was taking people's eyes off of Jesus and saying you need to add something else. And this was Peter's mistake. This is what he's communicating. We're just going to spend some time now. I'm I'm going to trim through this. We need to just have a look at what Paul's response is. So we've got Peter's mistake, but then we've got Paul's response. And Paul's response is to take Peter back to the gospel that's what he does he takes Peter back to the gospel you see where Peter and those who have followed him with those who have stepped out of line of the truth of the gospel Paul seeks to bring that realignment he seeks to bring them back in step with the gospel you see if Peter's mistake 
was deeper than being ruder on welcoming, then Paul's response is deeper than behaviour correction. He's not just coming to say, actually, your behaviour is not quite right. We just need to modify how you behave in and just to make sure things are okay. It's much deeper than that. It's not about behaviour correction. Actually, what, Pete, what Paul does is he calls Peter and he calls the rest of the church to remember the gospel. You see, the remedy to the nationalism that Peter was demonstrating is to recall how God had treated him and to recall how God had welcomed him. I nearly lost my notes. That's what the remedy is. It's to go back to the gospel, to be realigned, to remember how Jesus has treated you, to remember how you've been welcomed back to God. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we'll expand on this through the rest of the letter. It's going to be something that comes up time and time again. And I don't mean this in a negative way, but you might approach these, uh, these sermons and you might approach these scriptures saying, he just keeps to be saying the same thing over and over again. Do you know there's a reason why he's doing it? It's because this is something that we really need to get. The gospel... That justification, will come to justification in a minute, but justification comes through faith in Christ is absolutely central to the gospel of Jesus. Martin Luther said this in his commentary on Galatians. He said that most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> Preachers don't really talk like that much nowadays, but I think he's getting his point across. We need to keep hearing this. We need to keep hearing the gospel. We need to keep hearing about grace. We need to keep hearing that it's all a work of him and not of us. So over this series, you might feel like we're beating this into your heads, but that's because we need to. And as leaders, as preachers, we need it beaten into our heads as well, because we need to be reminded of it. And so we have this, another one of our repeated words was this word justified. Justification is central to the gospel and justification to be justified means you've been made right with God. It's a, it's a legal term. It's a, it's a courtroom term. It had legal implications and ramifications. Phil Moore, in his commentary, he says that uh, justification means more than forgiveness. So in forgiveness, you're being spared punishment for your sin. So you've done something wrong, but I'm not going to punish you for it. But justification is more than that. Justification is a declaration of our innocence. So it's not just that we're being spared our punishment for our sin. What justification means is that we don't deserve any punishment at all. This is incredible. This is incredible that this is what, we, this is what Jesus comes to give to people. That we can be put right with God. It's not just that I've forgiven your sins. I know that there are sins there, but I'm not going to punish you for them. It's like actually legally standing. You, you don't have anything to answer for. That's what justification is. God himself declares in the courts of heaven that you are totally right with him. And with what's happening in Antioch, what's happening with Peter, the need for justification is not what's being questioned. That's not what's being challenged. They know that justification needs to happen. They know that people need to be put right with God. They know that people need to have right standing with God. What's up for question, though, is the way that it is attained. Are we made right with God by what we do? Or are we made right God because of what's already been done? This is the reason why Paul is writing. Paul 
Paul says this to Peter. He says that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Effectively, what he's saying is there, we may have different starting points, but for both the Jews and the Gentiles, the answer is the same. The answer is that justification or our right standing with God, we don't get that by works of the law. We don't attain that or achieve that by living up to some standard, making sure we're ticking all the boxes, making sure we're following all the commandments. That won't get us where we need to be. In fact, the law shows us the opposite. The law doesn't show us that we can attain right standing before God. Actually, it shows us our utter need for someone to come and rescue us and for someone to come and save us. Because we can't, we can't live out the law. Actually, the first point of the law is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Everyone fails on number one, let alone number 613 or whatever they go up to. So actually, the law cannot... Cannot, we cannot get right standing with God. We cannot be justified through works of the law. Actually, the law shows us that we can't. And it points us to someone who will save us. We'll look at that more in chapter 3. Unpack that more. But what Jesus came to do, as one who did observe the law, this is what Jesus did as one who came to observe the law perfectly. He's the one that the law points to. You see, we're not made right with God so we are made right with God, not through works, but through faith in Jesus. And through Jesus, Paul's relationship with the law has changed. He's not living for the law anymore. He's not living for the law uh, as the way to gain acceptance from God. He says, I'm, I've died to the law. I'm dead to it. In, in as much as he's dead to it as the way to be saved, he realizes I'm not going to be saved by that. I'm going to die to that way of thinking. I'm going to die to that way of living because it's not going to get me anywhere. All the law has done is actually pointed, has revealed to me and shown me the fact that I'm a sinner in need of rescue. It's shown him his need for a saviour. It showed him his need for Jesus. The thing is, in, in, there is maybe a danger in... With, termino- with justification being a kind of legal terminology, there is a danger that we see the crucifixion, Jesus' sacrifice as an impersonal or clinical exchange. Do you see what I mean? Court- courtrooms aren't exactly the most personal places, aren't they? They're kind of in- impersonal, maybe a bit sterile sort of places. And there's a danger that we see the crucifixion as that. But to die to the law means that we are free to live for God. To live in a new way. To not live for ourselves anymore, but to live for the one who, as Paul knew, and Paul said this, it's to live for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. To live in step with the gospel in every area of our life. You see, the gospel is not impersonal. The gospel is not clinical. It is a deeply personal exchange. It is an expression of God's love for people. But it doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that we can just live our lives without thinking about how that affects God, or without thinking about the impact that might have on our relationship with Him, thinking, well, if Jesus, if we're only made righteous through faith in Jesus, then it doesn't matter what we do, then surely I can live however I want. It doesn't mean that at all. 
we've died to that old way of living. We've died to that old way of thinking and now we're living for God. Now we seek to live lives pleasing to God, not to gain acceptance, but having received acceptance already. And Peter's mistake and the message of the Judaizers, which Paul is challenging, is to suggest that Jesus is not enough. It's to suggest that we can gain merit with God ourselves. But if this were true, if it were true that we can gain merit with God ourselves, then as Phil Moore in his commentary puts it, he says that if this were true, then Jesus' crucifixion was either unnecessary because we can save ourselves or it is insufficient because we still need to top it up with our own good deeds. Or as Paul puts it, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And really this is kind of the, 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 the crucial point of this message, not only of this message, it's the, the crucial point of this letter, not only really is it the crucial point of this letter, it, it's the crucial point of the whole of Scripture. Is this, is that the gospel of grace through Jesus is all or it's nothing. It's either all or it's nothing. Because if we feel like we have to add something to it, then we're saying that actually the sacrifice of Jesus is unnecessary. I can do it for myself. Or we're saying it's insufficient. It's got me so far, but I need to do something else. So, I guess my challenge for us, not my challenge, my encouragement for us, is to be those that live in the goodness of the gospel as those who realise that the gospel of, of grace through Jesus is everything it's all that we allow ourselves to be continually daily realigned with the truth of the gospel I think Pete did a, a really excellent job last week of that challenge of is there anything that we are adding whether we've meant to or not or whether it's something that's crept in are we, have we added something to the work of Jesus. Yeah, I know that salvation comes through Jesus, but I just need to do this. I, just, I feel like I just need to, to do something, to contribute to it, to help it, to maybe push it along a little bit further. But if we go down that line, then essentially we're saying that the gospel of grace through Jesus is nothing. That sounds heavy. I guess in a way it is heavy. But something we need to realise. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of creation, the Word who was there at the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega. How could his death mean nothing? Actually, his death means everything. If we put our faith in him, realising that to be made right with God is not dependent on us. It is dependent on him through our faith in him. Let's pray.